Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this week's The Space Show, our big ticket item is the first of three programs celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17. That was the sixth and final Apollo lunar landing. Ahead of that, Artemis 1 is on its way back home after two weeks orbiting the moon. And we have more about the mixed fortunes of the 10 CubeSats launched with Artemis 1. SpaceX has delayed the launch of the Japanese lunar lander Hakuto-R and it's not because of the problem with the payload, it's the rocket that's the problem. But first up we have Spatial News. The three-person crew of the Shenzhou-14 spacecraft have returned to Earth after a six-month stay aboard the China Space Station. They landed on Monday morning, Australian Eastern Daylight Time, at the Dongfeng Landing Site in northern China. Three astronauts of the Shenzhou-15 mission remain aboard Tiangong a week into their six-month residency. The Australian companies Southern Launch and AT Space have announced they intend to launch two South Australian-built Kestrel-1 rockets this month. These suborbital flights will be launched from the Whalers Way launch site, which is on the coast of South Australia, southwest of Port Lincoln. They are expected to reach an altitude of over 200 kilometres before dropping back down into the ocean after a flight time of approximately 10 minutes. The Kestrel-1 rockets were designed by AT Space in Wingfield, South Australia. They are 10 metres tall, have a diameter of 1.5 metres and have two stages. The payload of the VS-05 flight, as the first second of these is called, is a spacecraft built by Adelaide company Innovore Technologies, carrying experiments designed by the Mawson Lakes Electronic Warfare Company, Ascension, and by Southern Launch. The Kestrel rockets will be tracked throughout the mission by ordinary satellite phone technology. This eliminates the need for expensive ground-based communication infrastructure. First launch will not occur before next Wednesday, December the 14th. Let's take a trip to the moon Come on, let's go for the moon I want to go to the moon Let's take a trip to the moon Sakan Action is a Japanese band that was founded in 2005. They describe themselves as a rock band with folksy melodies and a club music approach. They have released seven albums and regularly sell out arena tours and rank at the top of the charts in Japan. To the backdrop of images 
of the Moon and the Hakuto uh, Lunar Lander spacecraft, the band plays Serato, a song written in 2018 in support of Team Hakuto, a participant in the Google Lunar X Prize. Now, Serato was the name of the rover designed for that competition. A disc containing the song is aboard Hakutu R. Now, let's hear that song as it is aboard the spacecraft and the Hakutu R spacecraft, which at the moment is sitting on the rocket at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. This is Serato. Action from Japan with the song Serato. Lyrics and composition by Ishiro Yamaguchi. And for those of you who don't speak Japanese or understand it, the lyrics said, The falling stars in the sky that you simply pointed at left flowing streaks stretching towards the moon. And that is on a disc which is on a spacecraft, which is sitting on top of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket awaiting a launch to the moon. It was supposed to have been launched some time ago. Now, the Hakutu-R Mission 1 uh, will carry to the moon's Atlas crater the Emirati's Rashid rover. The 10-kilogram four-wheel rover is named in honour of Dubai's late ruler, Sheikh Rashid bin Said Al Maktoum. The 87-kilometre diameter atlas is an impact crater which is two kilometres deep. It has an inner wall that is multiply terraced with a slumped edge. Now, crater four flashes indicate past volcanic modifications. Landing is expected to take place around the end of April next year. Alternative landing sites have also been named should the launch be unduly delayed. 
After launch from Pad 40 at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station by a Falcon 9 rocket, the Hakutu RM-1 will travel one and a half million kilometres from the Earth before going into a wide-looping orbit. Tracked by the European Space Agency and controlled by an international team in Tokyo, the craft will match orbit with the Moon and gradually catch up to its trailing hemisphere. With minimum approach velocity, it will then land. So uh, we wait news of how that gets on. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. And on the dark side of the moon has been Artemis, Artemis 1. Now, the Orion spaceship is now on its way back to Earth after spending 10 days orbiting the moon. Yesterday, whilst behind the moon at 3.43 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time, Orion fired its main engine for 3 minutes and 27 seconds. This increased Orion's speed by 1,050 kilometres per hour and gave it enough velocity to escape lunar gravity. Soon after the engine firing, the spacecraft came as close as 129 kilometres to the dark face of the moon before soaring high over the sunlit near side and on its way to Earth. Splashdown off the coast of California is due on Monday, December the 12th. Now, eagerly awaiting the return of Orion are a bunch of scientists who have biological experiments. Two of them are Holly Birdsell of Baylor College of Medicine and Timothy Hammard of Duke University, and they have some algae aboard. We are flying a green algae, which people think of as pump scum, which it is, but there's much more to it. They are a great little tiny traveling companion that can answer a lot of our needs. Green algae are a very special interest point, a key to studying cells and their reactions in the whole plant world. Algae is a wonderful source of hydrogen which is a gas but that can be used as a fuel. Uh, you can eat algae. You may have to do a little something to make them tasty, but they, but they are edible. When you go into deeper space, and Artemis is gonna go a lot further than let's say the International Space Station, it's gonna be exposed to what we call deep space radiation, which is more intense and a somewhat different kind of radiation than we can generate here on the surface of the Earth. We have thousands of different kinds of algae. Each one is missing one little key part of its total machinery, its total information. We're gonna let them grow as they go around the moon and we're gonna see who grows the fastest and the best because that's the one that you wanna take with you when you go to Mars. Our work will begin to answer the questions of how to optimize plants in space and how to 
protect astronauts in space. Space is a very good tool to answer clinical questions on the ground. We've never had the chance to study cosmic radiation since the 70s, and the tools to do it now are dramatically better. So Artemis will let us learn a lot of things that are both relevant to radiation therapy on the ground and protecting astronauts for long-term flight based on which genes are responsive to the radiation. I'm Holly Birdsell. And I'm Tim Hammond. And we yeah, are Artemis. Zheng Wang works at the United States Naval Research Laboratory and he has some fungi aboard Artemis One. Research in space is very important because we want to, in the future, we want to send people to space, to the moon, to Mars. We have to understand how can we survive. This is an unknown environment. The fungi by nature has its natural mechanisms to survive and grow in a high radiation condition. This experiment want to understand how the fungi adapt to this space environment, how they cope with the radiation. This allows to find a new strategy or medicine to prevent people from prevent astronauts um, from damage by uh, space radiation. The second thing is also we want to develop kind of new biomaterials, not only protect human beings, but also can make in coating material to protect spacecraft and also electronic equipment in the space. Third one, so we want to build up kind of what can use it as a fungi to build up biomanufacturing uh, bio facilities in the space so we can produce a lot of um, materials, biomaterials, medicine, even food in the space. So we don't need to transport these materials to, to space in the future. These will significantly reduce the cost. I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, NASA to provide, provide us this uh, great opportunity to fly our experiments to the moon. And secondly, I also like to thank the US Naval Research Lab to provide us a tremendous resource to allow us to explore deep and think big. Hi, I'm Zhen Wang. I'm Artemis. Federica Brandisi works at Michigan State University and she's looking after the seeds. Well, she will when they come back from the moon. We had to think about having plants that can uh, produce more of the nutrients in a limited uh, space and with limited resources. Our technology equips plants with a higher content of amino acids that are essential for the human diet. We're going to send seeds of um, a model plant that is called Arapidopsis italiana, and we would like to see how, when these seeds come back from space, um, how these seeds react to space. We are attempting to um, see how we can um, improve uh, plant productivity um, using um, plants that we have modified uh, to have more uh, resources to withstand uh, space flight. By 2050, um, our 
population would have exploded. We need to make plants that are stronger and uh, more yielding um, in terms of biomass uh, productivity uh, to make the tools for mankind to, to survive in, in a space that is not becoming bigger, but where the human population is becoming more numerous. This, for me, will be uh, my third mission to space. And I can tell you that the first, for the other two missions, when we were doing the countdown of the rocket going out to space, I, I cried because it was so exciting being part of history, because each rocket they sent to space is part of history. But Artemis is mind-blowing because it allows to achieve so many milestones. I'm Federica Branditi and I am Artemis. Louis Zay is at the University of Colorado in Boulder and his interest is in yeast. It will be really, really hard to send a lot of humans in a spacecraft. You can send millions and millions and millions of yeast cells in a tiny little bag. We're going to use yeast, which is the same thing we use to make bread. And the reason for which we're flying these little cells is because they share a lot in common with our cells, our human cells. And you can still study things that would happen to those cells that are uh, very similar to what would happen to our cells if they were under those conditions. In this case specifically, it's that they are in the microgravity of space as well as a higher radiation environment uh, very far away from Earth past the Van Allen belts, which is part of this, this shield we have around planet Earth to protect us from radiation. What we're trying to do is try to use the microgravity environment of space to find solutions to medical problems on Earth. That's one. And the other thing is to make sure that human space exploration is as safe as possible. It is pretty uh, humbling and outstanding in, in every regard to think that we have something on board Orion in Artemis 1. And I can uh, definitely, I, I'm pretty sure that I speak for, for the whole team that we are very grateful. You can only imagine the amount of work of so many people to get to this point. And, and in this case, we're also thankful that uh, NASA uh, biology and physical sciences were able to include four experiments inside the Orion vehicle. So thanks to all this team effort of so many people across the United States and uh, international partners, uh, we're going to be able to um, hitch a ride and perform our scientific research. And those speeches courtesy of NASA. Now, Henry Louis Gates Jr. is a United States literary critic, a professor, a historian, and a filmmaker. He made this comment on the Artemis One mission after viewing some of the amazing images of the Moon and Earth as seen by the Orion spacecraft. These images reveal with stunning, humbling sublimity the triumph of the human spirit in breaking beyond the confines of the Earth, 
Let us hope that this milestone will inspire us to transcend all possible manner of difference, as the great Du Bois once put it, and keep foremost in mind all that we have in common as human beings, as sisters and brothers here on Earth. And uh, Artemis One is due to splash down on Monday. Yes, this coming Monday, so we look forward to that happening. This is The Space Show. Southern FM. The sounds of the Bayside. I saw the crescent. Well, if you've been watching the Artemis mission video coming down from the moon, you would have seen the whole of the moon. At the beginning of the mission, we saw the far side of the moon, and now, on the way home, we've seen the near side of the moon. Now, what about the CubeSats that were launched? There were 10 on the Artemis 1 Space Launch System rocket, and they were deployed, all 10 of them, but (laughs) some of them have disappeared. So let's get an update on a few of these. The Near-Earth Asteroid Scout mission, gone, lost. (laughs) No one knows what's happened to it, so uh, they're still trying to get hold of it. Then there was the uh, CUSP, the CubeSat to study solar particles. Well, about 30 minutes after being ejected from the second stage of the Artemis One rocket, the Deep Space Network received open-loop receiver telemetry from CUSP. And this indicated that the CubeSat had booted up, detumbled, deployed solar arrays, and assumed a safe sun-pointing orientation. Since then, uh huh, no further contact has been made with the spacecraft. Oh dear. Now, CUSP has either gone into heliocentric orbit as intended, or it has crashed into the moon. Now, this is a mystery unlikely to uh, ever, that we'll ever likely to know the answer to. Meanwhile, BioSentinel is one of the 10 CubeSats released by Artemis 1. It was to fly past the moon and into heliocentric orbit. Now, no word was given in the first week of its progress other than a message that it is transmitting. So we don't know quite what's happening with BioSentinel. Uh, th- there was a word on Monday uh, that news came that BioSentinel had a bit of a wobble early on and that the initial telemetry indicated that the spacecraft was tumbling. However, in a statement, NASA said the BioSentinel team worked with the Deep Space Network to send commands to stop the tumble. A couple of tenths hours later, the team received telemetry showing the detumble was successful. Since then, BioSentinel has remained stable and has continued to perform its mission milestones as planned. On November the 22nd, the spacecraft passed approximately 400 kilometers above the moon's surface and spent 36 minutes in darkness as it passed through the moon's shadow. Upon emerging back into sunlight, BioSentinel again pointed its solar arrays at the sun and recharged its batteries. The biology experiment is expected to begin next month. 
Now to the Japanese Equilus mission. As reported on last week's The Space Show, uh, Equilus passed the moon taking photographs as it did so. On Saturday, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency announced that the craft had made orbit maneuver control and orbit corrections before and after the lunar flyby. The agency noted the lunar flyby was completed as planned on November the 22nd and that Equilus has been confirmed to be in the planned orbit towards the second Earth-Moon Lagrange point. The JAXA further stated that this is the first successful control beyond low Earth orbit using a water propellant propulsion system. Now, Equilus will reach the Lagrange point in about one and a half years. Yeah, one and a half years, so don't keep your fingers crossed. Now, another Japanese uh, CubeSat was Omotenashi. Now, although the Otomanashi CubeSat failed its objective of landing a small probe on the moon, the main craft, if contacted, will continue to perform radiation measurements outside of the Earth's magnetosphere. Oh, and speaking of the Earth's magnetosphere, a Japanese satellite that has been studying the anti-sunward magnetic field, that is the magnetotail, has ended its mission after 30 years. Geotail was launched in July of 1992 and made groundbreaking discoveries about the Earth's magnetic field. One of these was demonstrating that magnetic reconnection occurs at the daytime boundary and tail of the magnetosphere. This clarified how ions and electrons behave on the side of the Earth facing away from the Sun. When launched, Geotail had a planned lifetime of three and a half years. In June this year, the 30-year-old data recorder stopped operating, prompting the decision to terminate observation operations on November the 28th. The satellite's radio transmitters have now been switched off. Oh, and a week ago, Capstone, the craft that was launched from New Zealand has completed the final manoeuvres to place it in its target orbit around the moon. The NASA spacecraft refined its path in the orbit it arrived in a fortnight ago. The technology demonstration is now in its operational phase. The commercially owned and operated spacecraft was launched from New Zealand on June the 28th. And now we're going to be talking about Apollo 17. 88.3 Southern FM. Where you are listening to the Space Show. I am Andrew Rennie. There were nine manned missions to the moon during the Apollo program. The first two, Apollo 8 and Apollo 10, orbited the moon but did not land. In 1969, Apollos 11 and 12 landed. Apollo 13 was planned to be a landing, but exploded on the way. The crippled spacecraft looped behind the moon and barely made it back to Earth. Apollos 14, 15 and 16 all succeeded in landing, with each mission becoming more ambitious. Then, 50 years ago today, the final Apollo lunar landing mission was launched. 
Aboard were Jean Cernan as commander, geologist Harrison Smith as the lunar module pilot, and Ronald Evans as command module pilot. But you already know that if you were listening to the lyrics of that song that we just played. Now, Cernan and Schmidt were to land on the moon, and Evans was to keep vigil in lunar orbit. Well, at least two of the three astronauts on that mission have been in Melbourne, and the space show has met them. And we're going to hear now a bit of a a history of the moon, uh, as told by Harrison Schmidt when he was here in Melbourne. In fact, I think this uh, talk is uh, when he was in um, Frankston talking. Let me just give you a, 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 a very, very short summary. This, that summary is that the samples that we retrieved from the moon, their analysis here on Earth, uh, the additional data that has come from several automated or unmanned missions of the moon, Clementine, Lunar Prospector, and the like, have resulted since Apollo in a, a very detailed understanding of the uh, history of the moon, a history that goes from about 4.6 billion years ago uh, to the present, but a history mostly which was over at about 3 billion years ago. And the reason that's important to us here on Earth is that that's the part of Earth history that we have a devil of a time reading uh, in the rocks of the Earth. We are getting a little bit smarter with that, partly because we have insights that we gain from the Moon, but primarily uh, just because the uh, Earth has been so active uh, volcanically uh, in terms of erosion of oceans and and streams and, and the like, we just have lost that history here on Earth for the most part. And it's a very, very important part of our history because that's the time, that period from uh, from a, about 6 uh, 4.6 billion years ago to about 3.8 billion years ago when life was evolving on this planet. And we just, until we went to the moon, had no insight into what the history or what the environment of the early solar system was like during that period of time. And now we do know. The moon has told us that. Uh, what was happening on the moon clearly was happening on the Earth, but in a very water-rich environment. And those insights have been absolutely fundamental to a lot of the discussion we now have about the origins of life. And in fact, there was a conference in Hamilton Island when we first got here. It was the first uh, couple of events that I had where this was uh, one of the primary talk, uh, topics of conversation and of discussion. Uh, it was a so-called bioastronomy conference. And, uh, and understanding what the history of the early solar system was and its impact on the evolution of life was extremely important to those kinds of discussions. So that's, that's one of the things the moon has told us. In addition, it ha the samples have told us that there are energy resources on the moon as well as other resources which are going to be extraordinarily valuable not only here on Earth sometime in the future but also to future space travelers. Uh, so uh, it, it, uh, for, just from the science point of view, uh, the exercise was hardly trivial, and it, uh, it, has amount, it is uh, increasingly exciting to those of us who like to study the Earth as well as think about the future of human populations on this Earth and their need for energy. That was astronaut geologist Harrison Schmidt talking about uh, the findings of the moon from the Apollo program. 
uh, Jean Cernan has also been here in Melbourne and uh, Peter Arwood from the Space Show caught up with uh, Jean and uh, had uh, this uh, conversation uh, with him. You did something not, no other astronaut had ever done in declining a seat to, to be on Apollo 16 to walk on the moon. Could you tell us about that? That's the biggest risk I ever took uh, uh, in a space program, maybe. Maybe in my life, as far as, you know, turning down an opportunity like that. Yeah, I uh, I had flown Gemini 9. I uh, uh, flew uh, Apollo 10. I was back up on an earlier Apollo flight. I backed up Alan Shepard in the, in the command seat on, uh, on uh, Apollo 14. Why? I had the courage to do that, I'll never know, but you're right. I had an opportunity to fly on the moon, Um, actually a flight before Apollo 17, but it would have been from the right seat. Why was that important? And my boss couldn't believe it. Deke Slayton said, you're turning down, and he never really guaranteed anything, but he almost did this time. You're turning down a chance to walk on the moon for a flight uh, in the left seat uh, for a, a, a seat as a commander of a spacecraft for a flight that may never come about. Or if it does, you may not be selected to sit in that seat. And I told him yes, and I'll and I tell you why. I, it's, it, it's not that I felt that I was better than anybody else. It's not that I felt that uh, I earned it more than anybody else. But I had to prove, given a chance, I had to prove to myself um, that I was good enough to do it, that I was good enough to command a flight and be successful that landed on the moon. Uh, You know, I'd been an underdog. As I said earlier, I didn't apply for the program, um, only because I didn't meet all their qualifications, flight time, and test pilot school. And I had to prove something to myself. Given a chance, I had to prove something, not to you, but 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 to myself. And when I stepped on the moon, uh, the first steps had already been taken, but those were my steps, and nobody could take them away from me at that point in time, or even today. And uh, it was then that I proved to myself I can do it, and I did. And don't ask me. I mean, it it was a risky it was a risky decision on my part. because, you know, I've always said fate has a big hand in uh, where you end up in this world. And uh, it sure did on this occasion. I, I thought I'd almost rip my knickers uh, and never would fly again. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight into, into you as a person, uh, Captain Sterner. So how long between you declining that, that seat on Apollo 16 and being uh, uh, appointed for the commander role of Apollo 17 was the, was it. That must have been a very stressful, lie-awake-at-night type of period for you. Well, you know, even when I I, I got the assignment as uh, backup commander on Apollo 14, I had absolutely no assurance, assurances of any kind that I'd, I'd fly an Apollo flight again, much less being a left seat on Apollo 17. I, I, I go back... I go back to the why me, and I said this in my book, and I don't take it back. I said, if I were my boss, and I was competing against Dick Gordon, a highly qualified, good friend of mine, highly qualified guy, could have been commander of Apollo 17. Plus, it was decreed that we would 
we would we had one lunar geologist in a program, and he was on the uh, on, on Dick Gordon's backup crew for fifteen, and he was going to fly. Wow. There was no doubt he was going to fly. Uh, we knew it. And why why would you break up a crew like like Dick did and fly me and Ron Evans and put Jack on our crew? I don't know why me. I don't know, but I you know I I. Uh, I don't know. I just thank God that he made that decision. I won't, don't know what <laughs> stirred him on to do it, but uh, you go out and do My dad said, my dad always used to say, just go out and do your best, and someday you're going to surprise yourself. He was right. And that was Gene Cernan, the last person to walk on the moon, the 11th person to step on the moon, but the last person to walk on the moon. <laughs> Gene Cernan in conversation with the Space Show's very own Peter Aylward. Now, Peter went on to ask him about the relationship with Australia. One thing that you probably are aware of uh, uh, is that Australia, uh, back in the 60s and continuing to this day, has a, a, a fairly small but very critical role in the deep space network. Were you, as part of your duties uh, in your missions, aware of the Australian involvement at Honeysuckle Creek, at Tidman Billa, at, at Carnarvon uh, oh, in Australia? Yeah. And is there anything you'd like to say Absolutely. to the people that work we, there? Because there'll be a number of those people at your movies, I'm sure. Uh, let me tell you, we couldn't have done what we did without Australia. Uh, God, God put that, that creator put Australia in the right place, uh, and uh, you know it was. It, it, you know I love Australia. I'm really anxious to get back to the people back there. So wonderful. There is much. You are all as much a part of the space program as we were. I've always said we weren't in that spacecraft alone, and and I believe it because I think anyone who had anything to do with it, anyone who put a bolt in the heat shield, anyone who who who, who worked with us from the surface from Perth or anywhere uh, was on that board, that spacecraft uh, with us. I can remember one time on my on Gemini Nine, I had a lot of trouble with my uh, well, we we I just my workload, my heart rate, I overpowered the the uh, um, cooling system in the in the spacecraft. My visor became fogged. I was outside the spacecraft day and night, a couple revolutions around the Earth, and one time I I knew. I knew I had to be over Australia, and I took my nose and I rubbed a little, a, a little hole in the fog so I could see through the, uh, through the uh, helmet, through the visor, and sure enough, there were the lights of Australia, <laughs> and that gave me a level of comfort that you cannot. I, I don't know if you can relate to it or not, but it was significant to me. Yeah, yeah, I can. And that was. Gene Cernan in conversation with Peter Alwood. And we have more from that conversation on next week's The Space Show. Now, if you would like to see a film about Apollo 17, it's going to be showing at the Sun Theatre. I can't remember the date. It's uh, in, in a few days' time. And it's going to be in the afternoon. So if you want to book for that, then you could go to the Space Association's website, which is space.asn.au, 
so Space Associations of Australia, which presents this radio program, uh, is holding this in, in association with the Sun Theatre in Yarraville. So that's space.asn.au to find out about the Space Association. And from there you can find a link where you can book for this special event on an afternoon in a few days' time. And it's going to be absolutely wonderful. And there's even going to be a talk by, I believe it'll be Peter, about the Apollo 17 mission. And, of course, we get to see the film. And if the weather permits, <laughs> there will even be a model rocket launch, uh, model Saturn V launch, uh, outside the theatre as well. So do take a look at space asn.au to find out more about that. Well now, you've been listening to The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie and we'll have more about Apollo 17 and the Artemis mission and all sorts of other things on next week's The Space Show. (laughs) 